Boys and girls, welcome to another episode of the Property Management Show. It's a privilege to be here with you. My name is Alex Osanenko. I'm the host, founder of the show. This is you know, going on our fourth year here. Um, the oldest, not very, maybe it's not a most proudest thing, but the oldest running property management podcast. Um, I want to thank all the listeners uh, for your questions and your attention to uh, um, to the information we cover. Uh, but my biggest sort of um, takeaway uh, for doing the podcast would be if you, my dear listener, went ahead and implemented some of the strategies and write me back what worked, what didn't, and then we'll sort of, it helps me direct the show content to help you specifically. So my day job, I'm a CEO of a company called Four and a Half. We do uh, marketing solutions for the property management firms. Um, and today's guest is an amazing entrepreneur, author, uh, coach, and just overall a very good person to learn from and learn with. Um, Scott Fritz, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you, Alex. Great to be here. Yeah, man. Good. So let me let me read through a couple of your accolades and we'll dive right in. I'll, I'll start with a very hard question. Like, I don't, you know, I don't want to ease us into this. We're just going to go in and, and you're, you know, you can handle um, all of it, I'm sure. But so Scott is an active angel investor since 2001. Um, and, and that's quite interesting. Uh, we, we'll uncover some of that um, later in the show. He founded a company called Human Capital, which is a PEO. And a PEO, for those of you that don't know, it's essentially an outsourced service for your HR, uh, payroll, yeah, human resource, that kind of stuff. And Scott, how I know this is we use, uh, we have used PEO service for, uh, you know, five, last five years. I wouldn't presume to get in into the business without having somebody else handle all the legal aspects of human uh, resources as well as payroll, um, you know, firing, hiring, all that stuff. It's just amazing. So he had that company started in when, Scott, 97? Yep, 1997. 97 grew to 170 million dollars in revenue um and sold it and then um he also authored a book called the 40 hour work year we'll talk about that and scott also is a founder of growthconnect.com which is where you do your coaching correct yeah absolutely so there's a lot of places you can hook up with uh, scott's knowledge but i think the best place and the nearest would be in austin in a couple of weeks, uh, April 16th or 19th, we have a conference called PM Grow Summit that I'm a co-founder in. And we got we got Scott roped in for a couple of things. Um, <laughs> he's gonna teach a workshop, uh, uh, which I'll be there writing uh, in my Fat Notebook along with all of you, um, as well as he's gonna do a keynote. So very excited about all of that, Scott. Um, why don't I just fire a question at you and see where it takes us. Um, this is the statement that you came up with in the book, as well as in a podcast you did with Jordan Muella on the Profitable Property Management Show. And here's the statement you make. If the owner stays in the business, it's actually worth less. Can you help us unpack this and just, just give us a high level and then maybe we'll dive a little deeper into, into the why of it? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in the book, I talk about the ownership paradox which is exactly that concept. Um, and without having the diagram in front of me, I'll explain it. When you think about working in the business versus working on the business, which, you know, that's Michael Gerber 101, uh, E-Myth stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, you go to sell your company uh, from a standpoint of valuation, 
uh, simply stated, when you get an offer and you're in there working in the business, all the compensation you've been taking out of the business to run the business in the business will not be added back to the bottom line on the sale. So in my situation, Karen and myself, my business partner, Karen and myself, we had not worked in or on the business for over four years. So all of our compensation we've been taking out of the business was added back to the bottom line because they didn't need to hire anybody to replace us. We'd already replaced ourselves in the business. What if it's a top line sort of valuation methodology versus bottom line? Like EBITDA is more of a bottom line approach. Uh, we see a lot, of, um, a lot of acquisitions in our space, the property management space, are done on, and we'll talk more about this, but done on the top line. How does that affect the state? Well, true. And so it's still going to be a P&L function, though, because that line item of owner's wages. So if I was in charge of the sales department and I was pulling 200K a year in salary to run the sales department, they're going to have to go find somebody at 200K or less around there to replace me when I leave. So either way, uh, that, that line item in the business is still having to be filled in. So if you look at a company and say, hey, we're doing $2 million a year, we're putting 500 grand on the bottom line, and it's running itself versus we're making $2 million a year and 500 grand on the bottom line, but the owner is in there working in the business, I'm going to say to you, well, I've got to buy out the owner. I've got to have an earn out for the owner, and I've got to replace that owner's salary. So even though it's a bottom line final number, uh, it still doesn't make you as valuable. And, and as I write in the book, uh, Alex, is the real sad part is you've lost all that time. So the money's important, but you can always make more money. You can't make more time. So all those days you've spent in the business, working in the business, is time you could have been with your family, starting other companies, going on vacations, trips, starting podcasts, speaking at conferences, uh, all that good stuff that really in my mind, is what a true entrepreneur should be doing, not working in the business, making the donuts every day. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to look up. No, I, I agree with that. Um, however, what about, I'm just going to poke at this, right? We're just going to yeah. poke at this because I don't think I'm, I fully agree. And I think it's just because I don't fully understand. It's yeah. not because I disagree. It's just I have, I have, a, I have a gap of knowledge that maybe you, you'll be able to fill. And I think my listeners may feel the same way. Isn't when the acquisition happens, Scott, wouldn't the acquirer pull the numbers out and still evaluate the company based on as if the owner wasn't there? Because the owner won't draw any more money. So that's, that's one aspect of it. So think of it this way. A lot of PM property owners run personal expenses through the business, right? Right. Cars, boats, what have you, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, justify a boat to IRS, I don't know. But they do. And so when the acquisition happens and we sort of um, have a lot of customers that acquire each other and, and acquire, you know, uh, other companies. And so we see a lot of these very specific things happen. And uh, one of those things is the acquirer will still pay for that revenue because those expenses are going away and that's going to become a profit. Like how, how does that connect with you, with your statement? Yeah. So again, I, I'll just use an analogy. So uh, again, back to my number, let's say you're doing it and you're right on the top line valuation. Uh, I understand where you're coming from. You're basically buying a book of clients or a list of clients. Uh, my analogy is more about what I call building an enterprise business where the company has more value than just its book of clients. It has intellectual property. It has brand value, things like that, which is really where you get a nice number for a business. I mean, if you're just selling a book of clients, whether it's a, a property management company, insurance company, whatever, you're going to get a rather low multiple. Um, so in that range, if we're talking in the you know a million to two million range, 
Um, the numbers may not be that affected, but what's really affected is if I'm looking at buying a, a property management company and I know that owner has to stay in there to run the business, I'm personally not going to be willing to offer top line or bottom line the same multiple as I would if the company was already running itself without the owner, if that makes sense. Hmm. Um, because I've got to work with the owner. I've got to deal with their, you know, their ego, their flaws, their, all the things they've already thought about with the business that now I'm going to say, I mean, I've looked at these before. So we looked at one in Vegas to buy. Uh, the person was pulling about 110K a year. Uh, and we offered her on her number about a 1.2 times top line. But we're going to cut her salary from 120 down to 60 because that's part of how we're going to pay off the note on the business. So to me, it's still factored in whether the person stays on or not. That money, if it's going to be a seller carry or you're going to buy it outright, those dollars have to come from somewhere. Hmm. So here's another poke at it. Um, and, I, and I hope it's okay if I'm poking um, a bit. Um, you have heard of a, a gentleman called Greg Crabtree. Yeah, I used to coach his company. Excellent. So, okay, that's the interesting connection. So his book, Simple Numbers Straight Talk, is a really interesting book. Simple simple to a point where when you kind of get into it, you're like, yeah, I get that. Yeah, I get that. And then it just, it just sort of dawns on you. And I think one of the key principles in this whole book is to eliminate game and ship. Like, eliminate games with IRS and taxes and, and just – and also true up your salary based on the position you hold in the business and make up the difference with distributions. Don't, don't go and pay yourself 30,000. You know, that's the other side of it, right? Pay yourself 30,000 and then take 200K in distributions to save money. IRS will come after you um, and, and vice versa. Don't pay yourself 200,000. You know, if, if your job is only worth 100,000, so make up a distribution. Like, what do you think about that strategy versus sort of removing yourself as an owner from the business. Yeah, so we always, uh, again, I speak to the company I sold without my other investments that I do, but uh, Karen and I always paid ourselves a salary commensurate with what it would cost to replace us in the business. Um, and that way the IRS is fine with that. That's basically what the rule is. So in my role as, as a sales, uh, you know, VP of sales, if you will, I hired that person, but overseeing the sales side of the business, I still paid myself what it would cost to have somebody come in and take over that pole in the business. And then we took the rest in distributions. Um, so, so I agree with that. I, you know, the last thing I want to do is get into some audit because of, you know, some payroll tax I was trying to avoid it. To me, it's, it's chasing pennies instead of dollars. Is what it is. Um, shifting gears for a second, chasing pennies. I like that. Um, should, well, yeah, I don't know if I, so there's, you brought up something very interesting. Actually, I'm going to, pin it right now. I'm going to let, let, let you know what that is when I'm going to pin it until we get to acquisitions. And that is IP and brand value. And how come in the PM space, uh, these things, in fact, I put a webinar together and a methodology on how to evaluate your brand and how, sort of, because uh, property management companies, a lot of them established ones have a significant brand value and it's not, almost never being accounted for. Somehow it's always a book of clients, as you mentioned, but let's, let's pin this for a second. Um, I want to go back and, and ask you this question, like for my listeners, um, at what revenue should a company be to consider bringing on outsourcing um, human cap, you know, HR, human resources, like the PEO company, like you ran, like we use Trinet, but what revenue would you recommend where it starts making sense? 
Yeah, so I, I always told my my team, so we had clients that were, you know, honestly, as small as one employee, and they did it for insurance reason, reasons. Uh, we had clients that were over 500 employees. So it's more to me about a headcount and a complexity of the business than it is a revenue number. So, you know, something I like to tell people, it's not so much about where you're at, it's where you want to be. So if somebody came to us and said, hey, we, we're a software company, we have 10 employees, we're now doing this all in-house, I'd say, okay, that's great but we want to spread to four other states and put sales reps in each state, then I'd say you need a PEO because mm. to go and spread yourself that thin in those states, every state's different. Uh, and that's, those were a lot of our clients, honestly. We'd have a client that have headquarters, let's say in Michigan with 50 employees, and then they have another 50 to 100 spread around the country all over the place. Uh, and that's really where the sweet spot is for a PEO. The other side, which you already hit on, which is just litigation and liability. Uh, I, know, I don't forget this, I tell this story a lot, when I used to do proposals and I was still selling all the time, uh, my 401k product was buried about halfway in a proposal. And I'm sitting there going through this with one of the prospects. I get to the 401k page and he goes, wait a minute, you become the fiduciary for the 401k? And I said, yeah. He shut the proposal on me, said, if you told me that at the first page, I would have signed up right away. He goes, I got sued three years ago for giving you know, financial stock advice to an employee at a Christmas party and got sued for 150k. Ooh. So for him, that one pain point was taking over the fiduciary for 401k, which, I, you know, that's a huge one when you, when you get into litigation situations. I can pay for a PEO for five years, just that, that lawsuit that you avoid. Yeah, and access to group insurance rates for us, that's what sold us about four right. or five years ago. I think we we're six or seven employees, and we did have out-of-state folks. We still do, and it, yeah, it's, it's just the way it works. It is costing some money, like there's, there's a, but it's, it's sort of like taking out a payroll, and you almost don't see it. Right. It just, it, it never hits. Um, well, somebody, somebody, again, I'm not, I'm not here to, to push PEO. Some people, I mean, I, I think it's a great service, but somebody has got to do the work anyway. And so when you factor in what that truly would cost you to bring in somebody at the level of experience and background, not to mention the cost savings, it's not, you can't even come close. I mean, we used to save people on average 30 to 40% real dollars in their business by bringing us on versus an in-house uh, system. Yeah. And so here's a good takeaway uh, for those of you who are walking your dog and about to walk upstairs and, and turn off the podcast. Consider shopping for a PEO for outsourced HR for your company. I think it's a good investment. We've done it over the last five years. Scott doesn't have a stake in it. I don't have a stake in it. This is just plain advice from two guys who run businesses. Um, all right. Next sort of shift is uh, we're going to talk a little bit about your book, but I want to make sure I understood the premise of the book and the premise of the book. And, and I made a mistake, Scott, I sort of, I like the audible so much that I've ordered your book on audible. I listen to it. It's enjoyable. Listen, but every, like every time there's a section where you get to reflect on stuff, like I felt like I'm missing out. Like, what did you learn about yourself? What did you learn about the business? And I'm beginning to think about it, but you have already started the next chapter, right? The audible just keeps on going. So it was difficult for me to reflect, to have the, the discipline to pause and actually work through the exercises. One of my friends, um, friends, one of our keynote speakers, Joey Coleman, has a PDF that goes with this book that actually helps, uh, that has work um, exercises through it. Do you have something like that for your book? Yeah, so the hard, the hard copy or soft copy or the PDF version uh, ebook, it's, the book's very short, it's, 90, it's a 90 page book with 38 pages of exercises. So the exercises are built right into the book. And to your point, people who have done the Audible uh, or have read the book say, you know what, you know, pass this on to people you know, 
read the book first all the way front to back and then go back and do the exercises because hmm. otherwise you go down that rabbit hole on you know the first set of exercises and, and you get stuck without moving through the whole book oh that's it that's an interesting idea right so so read the book get the premise and so let's see if i got the premise right so i i think like what you've tried to do here is put a playbook together for entrepreneurs to start because you do have some inspirational stories on starting the business, seeking out the idea, going after it. Not a lot, but there's some there. Um, but more, more or less, it's about growing, structuring, growing, and moving the bit, the owner into more of a passive role and then selling the business. Is that, is that the premise? Is that what you wanted to deliver? Yeah, the, the, so again, I go back to the E-Myth. The E-Myth talks about moving from working in the business to on the business. And I've read that book before I started my company. And as I started to grow my business, I said, you know what? I was already doing angel investing. I was like, hey, I can move from even working on the business. I can move to the role of passive investor in my own company like I do with my angel investments. Um, and then as I talk about in the book, you know, acquisition doesn't necessarily mean you get acquired. You can also go out and acquire others. So you'll see when I do the talk, it's not about exiting your company. It's setting up your business so that it can exit at any time for the maximum multiple it should receive. It's no different than you don't let your house run down and let the weeds grow up and the roof fall in and then go sell it. You fix it up when you're ready to sell it. It doesn't mean you sell it. It just means it's at a point where it could be sold for maximum value. That's such a good analogy. <laughs> we, uh, we've, uh, we've lived in this house in San Bruno, which was a great house, but older. And the kitchen was always old. And, and, and we were about to sell the house. Or actually, we're going to rent it, not sell it. And so we remodeled the kitchen. And we have like three weeks to live in the house. We're like, darn. Like, Man, I'd never seen granite countertops this beautiful. Like, I want to stay here now. It was that much, that much better. And then so we lost four years of, of slumming it in the, in the 1950s kitchen. Then we remodeled it and rented out the house. Yeah, right. not a great idea. Um, so I think your point is well taken on this one. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what about, like, the flip side of this? Um, what about entrepreneurs who actually enjoy running being the CEO, running the company strategically, you know, given direction, like say, say like myself, like I actually enjoy the work. Um, now, now there's consideration about like stepping away, what that might look like, what other opportunities are out there. But let's say somebody is truly, truly thriving. They have a great team. Everything works. You, you keep hiring. The company's growing at a predictable rate. Market is, uh, um, is good for the, this particular business. Where, what do you recommend? Like, do they need to read your book? Do they need to do what you did? So again, to my point, uh, the, the exit is what I did, uh, but you don't need to go there. Meaning you can go to the 40 hour work month or, you know, whatever you want to go to. If you're doing what you love and you truly love doing that, then stay in there, create an evergreen business, create a legacy business. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. What my, the sad thing that I see over and over again with entrepreneurs is that they get so stuck in the business and, and then even don't get time to run on the business that they lose the time that they should have had. Or worst case, worst case and you, you're aware of this, a lot of divorces, a lot of kids who don't know their parents uh, or their dad or mom who was the entrepreneur. Um, you know, again, I had a great family childhood and my dad was an entrepreneur, but you know, when I was young, he was gone before I woke up and he was gone after I went to bed pretty much every day. Um, and, 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 you know, we're real tight and have a good relationship, but, one of the things I really wanted to make sure with my kids is, and it was kind of funny, is, um, you know, they really had time with me and I really got to be part of their lives and got to 
help them become the individuals they are today. And, and so again, you have to decide how important is that or what role do you want to play at that level? Because um, my first daughter was born uh, two years before I started my business and my second daughter was born uh, two years after I started the business. So it's kind of funny because the way my business worked out, both of my girls, they come home from school and say, dad, we're supposed to come and talk about what our parents do at, at school and we don't know what to tell them because you're always home. <laughs> that's interesting that's interesting so how old are they now uh, my oldest is 22 she's married lives in houston and my uh, youngest uh, she'll be 20 next month and she goes to the university of oklahoma great man great um well so i have two girls as well and i very very similar uh the first one was born two years before <laughs> the business and the second one about two years after that's kind of interesting yeah. but yeah, we don't have a problem with me staying home. Um, that's for sure. That's, uh, that, may be, that may be something to, um, to get into uh, as I follow your advice in the future. Now, I hope you're enjoying this show. We'll take you back there in just under 60 seconds. But first, are you running a property management company that is looking to grow by 100 properties or more over the next 12 months? Are you looking for a partner who can design and implement all of the marketing so you can focus on operations, customer experience, and profit? Are you willing to spend three to $600 per owner as you add them to your portfolio? And finally, do you have adequate resources on your end to dedicate to completing your part of the project so your marketing can be activated and all the leads start flowing in, right? If the answers to those questions is yes. That means you are ready to grow and scale. And we here at Four and Half want to help you to do so. Log into fourandhalf.com, hit free consultation, and set up a time with one of my team members to go through your business and figure out how Four and Half can deliver the growth you're looking for. Now back to the show. In the property management space, what you just described, um, a lot of times you say you want to be a, you know, you don't want to own a job, you want to own a business. And working on the business, fine, being CEO, running the company. But as you have this exercise, putting an org chart together and, and checking the boxes, what is it that you are like your best, your, what is it called, unique ability? Um, I think that's, that's kind of a concept I want to explore on later. Um, later in my life and reading and stuff. I, I'm still not that good. And I think, I think it's Gary Keller. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so that's a very interesting aspect. And so like, let's say I'm within my unique ability and all that, but also the other side of it is like, you, as you said, you're just slaving away and you just plugging holes and you're trying to, you know, you're trying to make things work and meet the payroll and your people are, you know, desperate and overworked and blah, blah, blah. Um, I see a lot of that in property management. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's a, as I talk in the book, it's a lot of mom and pop, what I call mom and pop businesses. Uh, they don't own a business, they own a job. Meaning, I always use my dry cleaner as the example. I mean, the dry cleaner I go to here outside of Austin, it's the same lady. Every day, no matter what time of the day, on the weekends, in the mornings, in the afternoon, send my wife by to pick up, you know, Emma's there, Emma's there working the counter. She works, she owns a job. Uh, if Emma doesn't show up, the store's not open, there's no money coming in. So again, if that's the life you want, I don't think it's much of a life, but if that's the life you want, then go for it. Uh, there's, there's hundreds of thousands, millions of those businesses. I mean, it's the majority of small companies in, in the U.S., but um, I just think there's a better way. And, and we all have 24 hours in a day and how we choose to use it kind of defines where we go with that. 
So let's say there are some listeners uh, that are in that category, but are ready to elevate. It's very difficult. It's very, very difficult. I ran a small business, like this company was small, um, you know, um, seven years ago, six years ago. Um, it's tough, man. It's tough. So, so what, what, just give us maybe a couple steps that like, what's the first thing you would do? So the first thing that I tell anybody that's, uh, you know, in the position of running the business, owning a job, I say, take your annual compensation. So your total annual compensation and divide by 2000. So that'll roughly give you your, your hour rate. Okay. And I do this exercise. I'm sure I'll do it, uh, here at the, at the event in a couple weeks. Um, so let's say, I don't know, you're making a hundred thousand dollars a year, total comp. So that's everything. That's your perks. That's your, you know, your distributions, everything. And divide by 2000, that's $50 an hour. All right. And now I say, list all the things you are doing currently in the business. All right. And it takes some time to get to my decision matrix in the book. There might be 30 things you're doing in the business. All right. Now in the next 30 to 60 days, I want you to pick the three that you absolutely need to relinquish. You need to stop doing these three things in the next 30 to 60 days, as long as they're under $50 an hour. So for example, uh, you know, you're going out and um, presenting proposals to people, um, or you're going out and changing, I mean, these property management, you're going out and changing locks on doors as an example. I don't know if somebody's doing that or not, but obviously you can hire that done for less than $50 an hour and get these off your list. So the idea is over nine to 12 months, you move those 30 down to maybe five to 10 that you still are doing, but those are things high value, high dollar things, that are using your talents, your pace, your pay grade more productively in your business. You know, I, I say, I say this a lot, talk to people and you'll hear this a lot at the conference. How are things going? Oh, busy, busy, busy. We're busy. And, and I stop people. I used to do this a lot. And I say, look, are you busy or are you productive? And so I'm back to that again. I don't think you're being productive if you're doing things that you could hire somebody to do at a lower wage than what you make on an hourly basis. Hmm. Very sage. That's that's a, that's an interesting advice, and that's, I think that's a that's a step by step process that anyone can implement. I, I can see reasons why, like you know, you have to have employees that be that are be able to do it and all that. What about your income? Like, let's say I'm the business. Like, connect this exercise to to what I take home today. Let's say I'm that business owner. I'm ready to sort of start elevating. I'm going through the exercise. I need to hire somebody. Do I do I need to be ready to give up some of my money today in order to make to make this company work in the future? Absolutely, so in, in the book, I believe you have to. I haven't met anybody who's done it any other way. Um, I say in the book, it's the big question exercise. So, so my, my question was, because I was moving from Michigan to, to Vegas um, with my business partner, I said, Karen, I believe we can transition out of the business if we take a substantial pay cut for about a year and put that money back into the business. So that was, we bought a building, we put in some new software, some new, some IT, we hired five key executives we hadn't hired before. Um, you know, it was about a 60% pay cut. So Karen and I took about a 60% pay cut per year um, and put that money back in the business. Uh, the funny thing is, Alex, within nine months, I was back to making what I was when I took the cut. Um, now, that was a lot quicker than I expected. It also included, which I'll talk about at the event, 9-11 happened during that time. So that was a big scary thing that really tanked our business for about three months. Um, but it's very doable. And really what my book's about is the mindset of the entrepreneur is the biggest weakness of a business. So if you're in the mindset, we were saying earlier, you know, can't never did anything. If you're in the mindset that I can't hire somebody, that I can't train somebody, 
that the business can't grow, you're right. Just as if you say, I can hire somebody, I can train somebody, the business can grow. I mean, it's mindset. That's what it is. Gotcha. Yeah. So I, I remember the story in the book and I think it's towards the beginning. And is it at the same time when you and Karen actually wrote numbers independently and those numbers kind of aligned? Is that, yeah. Right. Um, so, so that's a little bit of a lesson to align with your partner as well. Right. Um, Cause I think you went through that um, with a partner where both were aligned. Had she not been aligned, I imagine this book may not have existed. Yeah. We probably reality that there were three options we could sell. Uh, she could buy me out or I could buy her out or we could transition out of the business. Those were the three options. Uh, we had a very strong buy sell with a shotgun clause. So if I made an offer and, and she didn't want it, she was then forced to, to buy me at that number. Um, so we had very structured uh, ways of doing things, which I also think is important. Uh, you know, if you really want to know if you, if you have business partners uh, and I'll say this at the event, you, the one thing you want to take away from my talk is go put a buy sell in place if you don't have it. Uh, because that will just avoid uh, a lot of mess and a lot of attorney fees down the road. Ooh, another massive takeaway. If you walk in your cat and you're one of those people who walk your cat um, and you're walking upstairs and got about to turn off this podcast, the second takeaway was just dropped. I think this was, this is a really good one. Um, have buy sell agreement. And I think, um, I think none of us, or man, I have partners too. And we, we, we don't think about these things initially. Um, so that is a that is a really good advice. Now shift, shifting gears to more uh, property management specific stuff, right? We see a lot of consolidation. In fact, I've been saying this for the last three, four, five years. Yeah, we've seen a lot of people buying other property management companies, but now it's coming to a point where it's just red hot. Like everybody's buying somebody, <laughs> and somebody wants to sell to anybody. Um, it's just that crazy. Now your experience with FGI property management, you're um, you're definitely a strategic advisor for them and are involved um what do you see um what do you see as some of the mistakes people make in property management acquisitions you went through a few you've heard of a few what's some of the like things that just are broken in your opinion in this industry uh well again and, and you know total transparency here uh tim and i have looked at acquiring i think it's now up to six or seven uh party management companies none of them have gone through and I, I told him about this before we got started because I used to own a, I used to own a PNC uh, insurance agency in Vegas. And the reason I bought it, this was after I sold my other company. The reason I bought it was I was going to go acquire small PNC companies, get it up to a reasonable size, and then sell it. Uh, and, and the main reason people don't sell, this is to your question, it has nothing to do with the money. It's, it's a mindset. Uh, it, it's, it's a fear of not having something to do. It's a, well, what do I do once I sell? Uh, and I always tell people, it's not the price, it's the terms, right? So you, you go to a buyer and you say, all right, we'll buy you at even two times top line, uh, but here's the terms. We're going to give you 25% down. It's going to be a seller carry over two years. You're going to stay on over those two years and we're going to transition out of the business. And then if you want to keep a little, you know, what I call second bite of the apple at the end and hang on to 10 to 20%, we can do that. The deal is, is the best deal that they're ever going to probably hear out uh, from that standpoint. Uh, and we're very flexible with that. So again, I'm back to mindset. I hate to say it, but it's what's broken. Um, these are mom and pop businesses in most cases. You know, they got 100, 150 doors. They're still very active in running the business. And um, they have not created that executive team or the, that decision matrix to move themselves out of those roles. Uh, we, had a, we had a person, great offer. I think we were at two times. And, and her reason for not selling to us was her CPA said she was going to pay too much in taxes. I mean, that was the reason. I mean, you go back to Greg, Greg Crabtree, right? 
he, he has two ways. He just says there's only two reasons you're not paying a lot of taxes. You don't have a good business or you're committing fraud. Yeah. That's yeah. it. He said, he said, I can, I can determine how successful you are by the size of the check you write to the IRS. Right. And another friend of mine, Mike Catalano, always said, <laughs> his tax attorney, he always complains to his taxes attorney, he's paying a lot of taxes. So his tax attorney says, look, you give me the money and I'll gladly pay taxes on them. You wouldn't have to worry about it. Right. That's, right. hey, you know, it's, it's it, you know. Right. That's that's a, and and there's there's also ways to structure this in in more of a right a payment uh, sure. you know, over time right not not bulk, bulk sum initially and so sure. that reduces liability. So I think it's I think it's a combination of a lot of things. But again, I go back to it's really mindset. You know, I heard this a long time ago, and it's absolutely true. Remember, you know, most people that sell a business, it's the one time they'll ever sell a business. So they've only done it once, or they're only thinking about doing it once. It's really highly unlikely they'll ever do it again. However, the people that are buying them do it for a living. They do it on a weekly basis. So you are automatically at a disadvantage as a seller when it comes to selling your business, unless you really have a real, you know, a high-end business that's kicking off a lot of cash. Now you can afford to hire somebody to come in and coach you through that. Hmm. Very interesting. So, so mom and pop, and, and it's, it gets emotional, but I see a lot of acquisitions still come through. Why, why didn't yours come through, you think? Or is it, did you say no, or they said no, or is it a combination? Give me, give me one or two examples, maybe. Yeah, I, I, I think the reason a lot of them, again, just the ones we've gone after haven't happened. Um, people are stuck in the mindset that they, they, it sounds cool to sell, and then when we're like, hey, it's just like buying a property. Hey, we're ready. We got the money. The you know powder's dry. We're ready to wire the money. It's almost like, oops, uh, I hadn't really thought this through enough in my own mind of what I'm going to do next, where I'm going to go. Um, and, and, and although we've offered people earnouts where they can stay on and work or even stay on as partners, um, and that's a lot of what we like to do. I think that's the biggest hangup for entrepreneurial small run companies. And, and I, I would say this too, Alex. I'm, these people aren't really entrepreneurs. They're business owners. Okay, there's a difference there. Yep. Uh, an entrepreneur has, they jumped off the cliff, started the business and probably have their hands in five or six other things anyway. So for them to close and sell is a much more likely event than a business owner who's been running this property management company for 10, 15, 20 years. It's been their baby. They probably got kids working in the family, maybe a spouse, relatives. It's a way of life more than it is just a business. Karen, for Karen and I, our company was just a business. I mean, in our, in our business plan, our plan was to sell the business in 10 years. We sold it in 10 years and three months. Hmm. So, you know, be intentional, right? I mean, if, if whatever your intention is, so, so don't go out and say, I want to sell the business, I guess, because I want to sell it. What is your end, right? Begin with the end of mind. What are you going to go to when you sell it? You have to have something to go to to make that sale make sense for you. Wow. Yeah. No, very good. Um, what, what do you think about, yeah, the differences between entrepreneur and a business owner, but but I think to graduate into entrepreneurship, you have to be a business owner. Uh, but you have to be a business owner who has the time to self-educate, read books, get coached, go to seminars, go to conferences, become an entrepreneur, build wealth for your for your family, and build the legacy that way. That's not for everyone. Right, right. Some right. people ski, some snowboard. Yeah, just admit, just admit you're a business owner and, and do the best you can do as a business owner. I agree 110%. You know, there's this concept of an entrepreneurial CEO. I mean, it's almost like a unicorn. I mean, there's very few of them out there. Um, 
most entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs like myself. I'm a builder. I like to go build things and then get out of the way and move on to something else. Business owners like to go in, run the business and run the business, put in the structure, hire the people, you know, oversee the business. They might be there their whole life. They have no problem with that. that that's a mindset that works for a lot of people. Uh, yeah, you, you, you brought up a good point. I, I think you and I both are very similar with that perspective. Like, I do, I am considering my, I do consider myself a builder. And now that my company is all stabilized, stabilized, we have incredible executive team. We have just, uh, you know, we've done the best quarter we've ever had and just things like, I, I feel like I'm almost disrupting, um, with my sort of spearhead, <laughs> always sort of like, always, always going to battle. Every time I walk into this darn office, man, I put a helmet on. Yeah, I, I put a helmet. I take out my spear, what have you, and I go, man. And that's, to be honest with you, I think you know partially is disruptive to the people who actually are tasked with running this thing. Yeah, and I, I, if I engage a new client, I'm sitting down with someone like yourself, and I say, all right, something I need to be clear on before we start this thing: how involved or how many touches are you putting on your team on a daily, weekly, monthly basis in things you have no business touch? Okay. Typical entrepreneurial CEO, not a business owner as much, but a typical entrepreneur go, oh, they're autonomous. They have total freedom. I allow them to fail. They have budget, they have budget act, um, budget responsibility. They're totally on their own. I go, okay, so you have no problem me asking that same question to these same people. And I go in and by the first conversation, it's like, oh, you mean this stack of stuff over here where they want to sign and then look through before I send it out? You mean that kind of uh, involvement? That's a typical conversation, right? Uh, I wouldn't say it's quite micromanaging, but it's definitely an oversight mindset. And you know where this all comes from. I mean, it's this simple. It's the T word, trust. If you can't get that soft, strong trust going on in your organization, I don't know as an owner or an entrepreneur, you ever totally can back out and transition out of the business. Uh, another great book, uh, Speed of Trust, that's by uh, Stephen Covey Jr., not the senior who passed away, it's his son. Speed of Trust, awesome, awesome book. Great exercises to take your teams through. Uh, I do a whole half-day coaching session on it because it's so good. Um, when you get that trust level with your executive team, again, you now as the entrepreneur, the owner truly can back out because you have the trust. Well, you know, we've been implementing EOS for the last 18 months. And it's, it's, it's I mean, this company was run, like, so I think 18 months ago, like, this is what, like, you know, do you have a sec? Do you have a sec? Do you have a minute? Like I think you, you mentioned that in the book, it's just it yeah. just never ends, right? It never ends. Um, and you know we have twenty, you know, almost thirty employees, and you know everybody needs something, and and they're sort of almost afraid to make a decision because I can shortcut. Like I I already know what they don't know, and so for them it's just an easy shortcut. It's like me asking my dad a solution to a math problem, and my dad never gave me an answer ever, and he's like. He's a like PhD in physics. Like he can do it quickly in algebra and geometry back in the school. And he would never give me an answer, but he helped me work through it. I think that's very valuable. And so I was giving them answers because I want to run fast. We're growing fast. But I think EOS brings the unbelievable discipline. For those of you who don't know and listening, and I'm just sort of skimming through it, it's Entrepreneur Operating System. Um, and uh, the book is called Traction by Gino Wickman. Go pick it up. It will change your life. But I think you need to be four or five, six employees before that really will take hold. Although I read the book a while back and we just implemented 18 months ago, uh, started implementation 18 months ago. What do you think about EOS? 
Yeah, it's good. I mean, I, uh, you know, I do business coaching and I'm, I'm a development partner now with MAP uh, out of California. A buddy of mine bought the business last year, so I'm working with them on growing MAP, but very similar concepts, right? You know, uh, what we call vital factors or your key, you know, key performance indicators, metrics, building your one-page plan, uh, integrator, implementer, all those same concepts. Uh, and we always tell people, look, whether it's EOS, whether it's Gazelles, whether it's Strategic Coach, whether it's MAP, use somebody. You know, we the, the, the worst thing you can do is nothing. And that's, that's, you know, the analysis paralysis of not making a decision. Uh, that's the real bad thing. That, and again, we're back to mindset again, entrepreneurs, you know. Um, there's tons of really well-run, profitable businesses out there, but things like EOS or MAP, they just make them run better, quicker, and more profitably. And again, back to my main goal of my book is they let the owner and the entrepreneur enjoy life more and not be stuck in the, in the day-to-day grind. Yeah. Yeah, because at the end of the day, there's got to be economic and personal value from putting your family in the back seat for the first two, three years, putting your life on the back seat and spending, you know, burning out 90-hour weeks um, just to, to spin this thing up. There's got to be like, sometimes I feel guilty not coming to work. I'll be honest with you. Like, I go fishing for a day. Even my wife says, you know, everybody's working. You're fishing. I'm like, that's what I do a lot of my thinking. And uh, that's my thinking space. But, you know, it's like, it, there's a little bit of that. Like, it's almost like, I don't know. I, I, I feel guilty. Well, there, again, but that's a mindset, right? So my, my dad said to me, you know, I still remember this as a kid. Nobody lies on their deathbed saying they wish they would have worked more. <laughs> right so i mean you got to design that for yourself i mean I've, I've technically been i mean pretty much semi-retired since i was 40 years old i sold my business when i was 40 uh you know and i wouldn't have it any other way i mean that's one of the things i tell people i will never go back and start a business from scratch i'll invest in businesses i'll i'll, I'll do strategy planning for businesses i'll sit on advisory boards that's one thing i'm not going to go back and do it just was not i mean it was a great experience at the time and I was 30 years old and I can handle the stress and pressure as I talk about in the book up to a point. Um, but it's just not how I'm wired now. I mean, I don't, I don't need more stuff. I mean, that's just not who I am. I mean, if, if you need a lot of stuff, then you probably got to keep working. Hmm. So. Speaking about advisory boards, uh, when we're done with the recording of this podcast, I'd like to chat with you. So don't hang up. Oh, yeah, uh, sure. Don't hang up yet. Um, or, or that quickly. Um, all right, so I have a couple more questions, um, and I think I think we'll boil it down. We're about forty-five minutes in. That's that's good. My my longest-lasting dog walkers are about to come home, so want to give them some uh, some third takeaway. And I think we already have four or five takeaways. Um, the one thing you and I talked about pre-show, real quick. I'm like, hey man, you you seem like you have this internal en- energy, like you shine. It's like, yeah, I just came back from the gym, whatever. What is the routine you subscribe to, and what do you recommend? Like the only thing I do in the morning that really, really punches me in the face is I take a cold shower for two minutes, 60 seconds, <laughs> like straight up cold. Um, and, and like after the shower, you know, it's, it's a two minutes of just ice cold water on you. And that really does the trick for me. But that's, that's only two minutes. I have young daughters. I can't really do or I think I think I can't get, get up early and do. But what, what is the routine you recommend for healthy body, healthy mind kind of a thing? Yeah, and, you know, again, again, going to Covey again, the seven habits. I mean, that's kind of the, the, the Bible, so to speak, of the things you need to be working on. So, uh, you know, I, I get up in the morning and uh, I listen to a, a, a recorded uh, program. It's called Bible in One Year. It takes uh, 25 minutes. So I go through that in the morning and uh, get my head straight, you know, around God and, and what the main, main role I, my, I play in that. 
Uh, secondly, I do some journaling. So I spend about 15 minutes kind of reflecting on, on what I'm going to do today and, and things that are top of mind for me. And then typically I'll go to the gym. I don't, don't go to the gym every day, especially when I travel. But typically I'll go to the gym at 30, 45 minutes. It's weights and, and cardio. And the one thing, and I, I used to be in uh, EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, and, and uh, they have forums, and, and I was in that for 11 years. And there was a, a gentleman in my group who was wanting to get healthier with his body, and he asked for everybody to give him one tip of what they do. And I, and I told him, I said, look, I drink a lot of water. I mean, I drink, I don't have any, I don't have anything else to drink in the morning before I've had at least two bottles of water. Uh, that, that to me really gets the organs going. It really flushes the system and, and uh, you know, really vitalizes me. Uh, I think a lot of people drink not nearly enough water. I mean, there's all kinds of studies on this, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty much in a habit now. I drink eight to nine bottles of water a day. Um, I don't drink soda. Um, I do have an alcoholic beverage now and again, so I'm not, not that, you know, but I do drink coffee. I drink two cups of coffee. That's it. So if like I get back from working out, I'll drink two cups of coffee. Uh, my wife was a personal trainer for 15 years. So, you know, we don't eat a lot of bread, we don't eat a lot of that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm kind of getting to the health side of it, but those are the things that really, uh, I think give me the energy. Like if I, if, if I have too much sugar or I have, you know, go have pasta or something one night, I, I can feel it in my body. It's just, it, it really drags me down. Yeah, I've been on keto, uh, not to divulge into, into the dieting and, and health too much, but I think there's, there's something to be said for the energy when you just have a salad for lunch. Like I do this uh, Bulletproof coffee, which is essentially some really healthy bean, butter, and coconut oil, right? And it just, it just, there's no breakfast. There's no need for breakfast. It powers your body. It's slow release energy. Really, really good. And then you walk into the 12 o'clock, get, get a salad, maybe some chicken, and then you have more or less decent meal dinner, but don't don't go nuts. Um, it's been it's been, it's been really. I I mean I, I think I have doubled the energy. Yeah. Well, you mentioned earlier, so just not getting on the diet, but uh, back to the entrepreneurial um, routine. And I I I basically make my coaching clients do this, and I always do it on a Friday. You can pick the day you want, but an hour a week, go somewhere quiet. It could be literally the library or a park or you know some quiet place you like turn off all your devices and just sit for an hour and, and take notes, what I call journaling or whatever you want to do. You can do it electronically if you want. You can do it. I know people that do it with a voice recorder. Just start talking about how the week's gone, the things you hit, the things you missed, what you're going to do next week to fix those things. And then just kind of let your mind spiral a little bit about ideas that you're having, entrepreneurial ideas, and, and record these and go back and look at them every week as you do your next uh, weekly adventure. And I mean, that's how we came up. Honestly, that's, I say I came up with it. What I did was the pod model, the pointer distribution model. It came out of one of these afternoons sitting quietly and just reflecting on where the business was and, and some of the struggles we were having. And you talked about going fishing. It's the same concept. Just get out of your, your day-to-day busyness, back to busy again, and, and actually focus on those things. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great point for us to call this one. I think the pod model is a very interesting concept. I don't think we have time to cover it in depth, give it justice. But I will want to invite my listeners who are still with me and Scott after about 45 minutes um, to the PM Growth Summit, which is April 17th through 19th at, uh, you know, in Austin. Uh, we, you know, it's gonna be a great show. And, 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 and you know, I'm prepared to walk in and walk out a different person, right? I, I'm going to be transformed. I'm open to that. And I hope 
Um, ideal listeners, you are as well. PMGrowSummit.com. Scott, thank you kindly for your time. Please stay on. Um, it's been a pleasure having you on, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. It was a blast. <laughs>